right. What do you say we get? What do you say we get started? All right. Yeah. Well, let's do it, man. So welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each episode will be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. This week, we'll be discussing Husker Du's 1985 album on SST Records, New Day Rotsi. First, some quick bookkeeping. Greg, um, well, actually, we don't call the section bookkeeping anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, got, we have two new sections yeah. um, that we, we <laughs> thought long and hard about. So first, this will be called What's New, and it's you know, N-U with the umlaut. Um, and this is where we'll talk about any type of announcements or um, things relevant to the podcast, if we have any random recommendations that are related uh, things like that yeah yeah and so just like you know i want to thank everyone as always who's been listening along following along on our social media um just engaging with us leaving feedback um on any various platform as a friendly reminder we're obviously on itunes and spotify at this point um please do like and subscribe i'm not totally literate on how it works but it's my understanding that if you leave a review it somehow does something positive for the algorithm which yeah, yeah, I think it'll help. It'll help more people, you know, know about the podcast, which is cool. More people listening than more people that can interact with us and yeah. comment and, you know, we can address comments and things. I tried again to like, I don't know if this is like the kind of thing you're supposed to admit if it's not professional, but like, I can't figure out how, like Stitcher, I was trying to figure out how to get this on Stitcher. Yeah. And it just gives me the runaround. Like it says I need an email. And then when I have use my email, it says I can't use that email. Like it's like that body count cover of institutionalized with Ice T <laughs> talking about the, his email and how he invalid password. So we're still working on that, but at least at least we're on iTunes and Spotify and uh, Podbean. Yeah, yeah, and you know, just again, thanks to everybody who like we had some really awesome reviews this week on iTunes. We um also not sure if that's unprofessional for us to openly call that out, but. Hope it's clear, but we're just doing this like totally out of a labor of love. So a couple of corrections too. So this section has now been renamed as well. Uh, do you remember, spelled D-U with an umlaut. We had such a great time talking to Sal that we actually forgot to ask him what his favorite replacement song was on the air, which is a hallmark figure of our interviews. So we went back and asked him, um, Greg, what did he tell us? So um, I did reach out to Sal. Um, and yeah, we had such a nice time speaking with him and it just never, somehow never came up. I th- he may have alluded to it, uh, at least one of the songs. So we asked him replacements and, you know, we're not really sticklers if people pick more than one. So he, yeah. he gave, he had a toss up between favorite thing, of course, from uh, let it be great song. Yeah. And then sort of a, what some may call like a curveball, but a great choice, I think one wink at a time from the all shook down record. I love that song. And I asked him for those, at least why, you know, like in a challenging way, why? <laughs> like a we try to get really confrontational. You know, like, like a, like a toddler being asked to put away their toys. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, so after, you know, the initial shock of me asking him why, uh, he said, favorite thing is as close to power pop as they ever got. It really is. I mean, that track, 
we don't want to talk about it too much because we'll save that for when we get to let it be. But um, I think that was one of the first songs too where I heard it by the replacements and I was like sold. Yeah. I was like, this is a killer, killer song. Yeah. Um, and then one wink at a time, he just said it's probably his favorite Westerberg lyric. Um, and there are some great lyrics yeah. in that song. Yeah. And um, I also can't wait to discuss All Shook Down. I actually really like that album. Me too. So, of course, just like we did with Jeff and uh, the Husker Du interview, we asked him to for a couple solo and other related. So for um, solo Paul, he chose Kicking the Stall, which was from his album Mono that he recorded under the uh, name Grandpa Boy. And then Making Me Go from uh, the 2004, I believe, album Come Feel Me Tremble. And can't forget about Tommy and his favorite Tommy was just, uh, I let him pick this, even though it's not really what I asked, but it was the entire Chinese democracy album. (laughs) 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 He he said he he couldn't real curveball there. (laughs) He said, uh, Shackler's revenge is (laughs) just really gets, uh, that's on catcher in the rye again. Every time. No, he said um, from Tommy recorded under, uh, you know, he had a band named Perfect. uh, And his uh, choice for that was a song called Seven Days a Week, uh, which is from their album Once, Twice, Three Times a Maybe, which I believe came out in 2004 as well. I I probably should have looked. So same time as Paul was doing Come Feel Me Tremble. And then um, Loose Ends, which is from the first uh, bash and pop album from 1993 called Friday night is killing me. So thanks again to Sal for, uh, answering those questions for us and, uh, some really good choices there. So check it out. And I keep saying that I, I, we got to figure out a way to put the playlist together and put all these on there. It'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Also we, um, so last episode, when we discussed uh, Sugar's file under Easy Listening, we mentioned Lou Kriegel, who did the artwork. So uh, we actually reached out to Lou Kriegel um, to verify whether or not we, we had sort of seen online that somebody named Lou Kriegel did background, background vocals on a song on Monster. And um, we reached out to Lou to find out, and he was really generous with his response. And it was him. Um, it was on Bang and Blame, right? Uh, he didn't say I can read the, uh, his, his answer. So, uh, I was inspired to reach out to him from my friend, Darren, who's a friend of the pod, regular listener. He said, Hey, do you know if, you know, Lou Kriegel did the artwork for the accompanying singles for file under easy listening Mm -hmm. because they had, um, you know, like we talked about the singles, they had, uh, your favorite thing, believe what you're saying and G angel, all came out as singles for the album and had a similar themed artwork, you know, to keep it like uh, consistent. So I reached out to Lou uh, and this is what was his reply. I'll just read it. So he said, Hey, I'm happy to answer your questions, but I'm not positive about the artwork for the singles. I'm pretty sure they took patterns from the file under easy listening CD for the singles, but I'd have to see them to know for sure. Um, so that was the answer to that. Mm. And then I also asked uh, about REM Monster. So this is what he had to say. To answer your second question, yes, that was me on Monster, along with Michael's sister, Linda, Rain Phoenix, 
and Anne Diaz. You're a good sleuth. I also contributed some field recordings to an REM song on the album Reveal, but you can't really hear them. So there you go. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and Reveal, I'm, I'm, I wonder what song I have to go back. That was, and that was from 2001. So that was, you know, after Bill Berry and stuff. So pretty cool. Um, thanks. Yeah. Thanks Lou for, uh, answering us that was really unexpected i was yeah uh, happy to have that answer and no so that's really neat yeah yes uh, something to do exclusive investigative reporting right here hey i mean he did say we're good sleuths yeah but really the sleuth would be darren because he's the one that inspired well True. i would say you're the sleuth for noticing the monster thing because i didn't know that so, we'll call it a collective effort yeah you and darren are both sleuths all i did was smash that submit button on the message <laughs> well maybe we'll move on to the uh talking about the host new record yeah definitely so uh today's is new day rising mm-hmm. released january 1985 on sst records so um like we always like to give a little bit of personal background with the album so let's start with you jude what's your uh, what's your story with New Day Rising? This is the first Husker Du album I heard. And I know we talked about it some, I think maybe on the first episode, but I kind of had like, sort of like Sal described some of the um, stuff he was talking about last week, but I kind of had like a sort of complicated initial first listen to it. Like it took me, like I was like, this is really interesting. And like, it's not exactly like some stuff I'd heard before, but it it took me a number of listens, but like I was really intrigued by it. So uh, my parents, you know, really got me into like, you know, music like the Beatles and REM and stuff like that. And um, I talked about in an earlier episode, I would, uh, after high school, I would skateboard up to the local record store, Full Circle Records. And I was really good friends with um, one of the guys that worked there, George. Um, and he really got me into Black Flag, right? So I had these sort of like, you know, two ends of a spectrum of music that I was into. And then, um, in fact, one of the reasons I bought Husker Du's New Day Rising was just purely because it was on SST and it was before the vinyl boom. So I was like, because the, the vinyl copy of it was cheaper than the brand new CD copy, which is a crazy thing to think about in 2020. But, you know, it took, took me some time to kind of like, like a, a, a fine wine or something. I had to kind of like mull it over. But like once I finally appreciated what they were doing on the album, it just brought like everything together for me. like it just I was like they like I realized what they were doing on the album they were they were on SST records but they were doing stuff that you know is really musically dynamic how about you Greg yeah well one thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned that I, I just random thought about the vinyl and CD is uh, SST caught on really late that more people were started buying vinyl again than CDs so for a long time, their vinyl was still cheaper than the CDs until maybe the last like six or seven years, they caught on and flipped the prices. Mm. Those bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was neat. So for me, this was not my first Husker Du album, but this was the one that really kind of kicked off my... I don't want to call it a rediscovery, but like, you know, i discovered who's could do when I was in middle school. And then by the time I rebought, this was like maybe 2005. And I realized 
you know, this was the one I think that made it all click and made me go back to Metal Circus and Zen Arcade and everything falls apart mm. and then move forward. Like at this point, I didn't even hear Flip Your Wig yet. And um, I think I forget what made me choose New Day Rising. Like I was at the store and bought on CD. It may have even been Best Buy. And uh, so I don't even have a cool, like, I didn't even get it at a cool store. I think because Rolling Stone, for some reason, this is the only album that made their top 500 albums of all time. Their only who's good. No, it was the only album on there 500 times. was on there. <laughs> if you open the Rolling Stone 500 best albums, it's just New Day Rising 500 <laughs> times. Um, That'd be so, like if I were the music journalist for Rolling Stone. <laughs> yeah. Like it's weird. They didn't have Zen arcade because like, we'll talk about, they loved Zen arcade, but so that might've been why I got it. And uh, apart from the production being kind of jarring, especially I think on the CD. Yeah. I want to um, talk about that when we get to that. Yeah. Like we'll get to that in a, in a little bit too, but uh, it immediately sunk its hooks in, especially some of the tracks that we'll discuss. So uh, it's, Definitely one of my favorite things Husker Du's done. It's not my yeah. favorite Husker Du album, but uh, for me, for I, a long time, it was. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a real turning point for them. Like it was the start of them moving in a different direction, which again mm-hmm. we'll we'll break down. So, all right, well let's. So we'll give our little uh, backstory on the record. Um, so we've talked about before. You know, I feel like. With Husker Du, you kind of always have to talk about the frequency of their output. Yeah. Because it plays a big part in everything. Um, Zen Arcade comes out in July of 1984. And, you know, there was already problems starting to arise with SST and Husker Du. Uh, SST did not press enough records for Zen Arcade. They would show up at shows on tour and people would tell them we can't find the album anywhere they would show up at i think there's a story somewhere about an in-store signing they did and the store that they did the signing at had no records right yeah right and didn't they have like photocopied covers of it for people to like for them to sign and give to people i believe so yeah yeah and like that's i mean that sucks if i know like, what <laughs> if you yeah. if you put out a record and you're excited and you're touring on that record to go and have people not have it like now it wouldn't be a huge deal because they could stream it and at yeah. least know the songs and they could wait to get a record but back then if you didn't have it and somebody else you knew didn't have it or dub it for you that was it right exactly like people couldn't hear the music like now it would probably create potentially create like you know more intrigue and interest demand, in purchasing. Yeah. exactly so the thing too with SST is that like talk about a label that I think would often bite off more than they could chew. Yeah. Because as most people know, Zen Arcade um, comes out the same day as the Minutemen's double nickels on the dime. So here in, in July of 1984, they're releasing two double LPs and that costs a lot of money to press, you know, and all that. So who's do Bob made no, qualms about mentioning that like they still managed to release no less than four black flag albums in 1984 yeah and like so they're having problems getting the Husker record out but the black flag albums were 
were flowing like like wine. <laughs> um, and I'm tr- I was trying to think. So the Black Flag albums, you have My War, Slip It Slip In. It what else was Oh, Family Man. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of what the fourth one would be. I should know. Yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking it was um, – because live in 84, but I think that came out later. Yeah. Uh, maybe, pro- is it Process of Weeding Out? I feel like that was later. Yeah. They, I mean, they really, so as people know, like with SST, you know, uh, it's run by Greg Ginn, right. who is the, you know, founder of Black Flag. Um, so it's to be expected to a degree that he's going to focus um, his attention on that. But at the same time, oh, it is. It was Live 84, came out yeah. December of 1984. And you were so right that, about the other ones. It was Family Man, My War, Slip It In. So that's crazy. So they were, so they just didn't really have the right priorities. And the thing is, is that Husker Du were the number one selling band on the label. Yeah. So you have a label that isn't giving the proper treatment to their their biggest right. and what always struck me as crazy is on the inside so they turn in this double lp you know zen arcade and like we said we don't want to talk too much about zen arcade but it plays into this story and on the inside you know the liner notes it mentions how joe being joe carducci mm-hmm. um already wants another album which is crazy like we just gave you a double lp and you're already right. saying you want another album yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, obviously there were like the issues that we just talked about. But if SST wanted a band, if they were a label that would bite off more than they could chew and wanted a band that would put out a lot of output, then they picked the exact right band in Husker Du because they were always like touring and playing songs from like three albums after the one that <laughs> yeah. they were about to release. So they didn't have a problem writing the music. No, and and one of the things too that is mentioned somewhere these bands with multiple songwriters it doesn't it doesn't just i want to say it was maybe grant that said this it doesn't just double your output it increases it exponentially because there's that competition right and especially with them especially with bob right because it's basically like oh my gosh this guy's writing all these songs like if i don't start writing i'm not going to have so you're trying to outdo each other yeah so it's more than just having you know, in some bands where it's one person writing all the songs, they're shouldering everything. Like, like, look at the replacements, like right. Paul's writing all those songs. Yeah. So, you know, most of it falls on his shoulders to have, have the material. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It was something that actually you said on your other podcast, Greg, which is a, a good opportunity for me to plug your other podcast where it went, which is a very awesome podcast. Everyone should Thank listen. You. Um, but talking about how um, unbelievably prolific and, um, important the Beatles were and how sh- short of a time span they actually were together, right? So a band with like not even one, not even two, right? But four brilliant songwriters. Like I think that might account for why there was just so much Beatles. Yeah, because there's this like, because each album's maybe going to have a couple, you know, and in, in the case of most, most bands, it's not evenly distributed. Some are. Yeah. Um, and it makes for a lot of content. Um, so at this point, Zen Arcade comes out, gets great reviews. Like Sal mentioned, uh, the review of Let It Be in Rolling Stone that made him 
you know, check out the replacements. It was a dual review of Zen Arcade and Let It Be. So, you know, they get this getting great press, um, but people can't find the record. So they tell SST, they say for the next, we're going to, we'll do the next record on your schedule, but we're recording in Minnesota. They were like, we're not coming out to total access. Yeah. And, you know, Bob said something to the effect too of like, yeah, there's a little bit of romanticism to being like, I slept under Henry Rollins desk in between recording. They were like, but for this next record, we want to be able to sleep in our own beds. We want to be able to like, you know, uh, use instruments that we have in our house. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you're at another studio, it's like, this is what we have, or you got to rent it. And who's going do jam Decano, as we know, just, just like the Minutemen. Yeah. And they didn't want to rent, you know, they didn't want to rent equipment Yeah. and use that on the budget. So it was nice to be like, Oh yeah, I have this, uh, you know, this guitar I want to use at, at my house. I can just bring it tomorrow to the session or whatever. So, yeah. and like, I can imagine too, like when you're, touring as prolifically as they are it, you probably wouldn't turn down an opportunity to like not sleep on the floor of someone's office right yeah i i mean you know when we recorded we only did it for like usually a weekend and even yeah. that was like man i would rather sleep in my bed than on the studio floor in a sleeping bag yeah but so then it's so there's two different stories about so sst says fine but we're going to have Spot fly out to Minnesota and record you. So Husker Du basically says that like they had no choice, that they were told Spot's coming out and he's going to do the record because they knew that Spot would stay within the, the budget. Like he would record them on the cheap. He wouldn't make do a lot of frivolous you know, takes and overdubs and stuff. Joe Carducci says, well – Around 1983, when Zen Arcade was done being recorded, um, Spot had mentioned to him how he loved working with the Hooskers and, uh, you know, they were his favorite band to work with. So he mentioned that to Bob and I guess that endeared him to Bob and Bob was like, oh, well, yeah, we'll definitely have him fly out or whatever. So who knows? Yeah. Regardless, Spot is who did it. So he came out to Nicolette Studios um, and Steve Fjallstead, who worked on replacement stuff, as we've mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, at Nicolette, he was also recording it. So Spot, the band didn't really get along too well, well with Spot <laughs> during this, right? Yeah. So there's, there's the legendary story that's been told in several different publications about this record, where just as like a power play move, Spot came into the studio and looked at like the mixing board or whatever. And he was like, something's not right. This needs to be moved three inches closer to the wall. And like, instead of arguing, they just helped him lift this giant thing that had been there in the same spot for the entire time. The studio was there yeah. and moved it three inches. What does swinging dick move? Like what? <laughs> yeah. And like, the thing is, is, I haven't found, I've seen numerous stories about that. Like it's mentioned, I believe in our band could be your life. Bob's book, Andrew Earl's book. I think Mm -hmm. I've never heard spot refute it and be like, no, that's not true. So I guess. Yeah. Or like, oh yeah. I'd be curious to hear like maybe some more context or what I got, you know what I mean? I don't know about like recording bands. If he was like the 
acoustics in the room and the blah, blah, blah. Like if he had some kind of like engineers, like mindset with his own personal style as an engineer that he were wanting to, you know, clarify. Right. Well, I think too, there's, um, there's the whole idea of like, he's not at his home base. Hmm. Yeah. So I think maybe he felt like, you know, total access was his studio. He knew, uh, you know, he knew had the run of the studio and he yeah. knew he's at a new place. Yeah. So maybe he was just trying to kind of assert some type of power or maybe he really didn't feel comfortable. I don't know. Yeah. I would love if someone asked him like, so is this true? And then, uh, and why did you do it? Yeah. If so, yeah. So we, we'll have to see if he's on, uh, social media maybe yeah we can, maybe we can we've had good luck so far so i know maybe, maybe we can reach out to him and ask because i always wondered that i'm like was it really just like you said like a swinging dick move or right was there a reason like is he gonna be like no this was why i tr- I tried to track you know the drums and it sounded wrong i don't know yeah so um like we t- we talked about on, on uh on this the sound starts changing a, a little bit. It's not, to me, it's not really a drastic change in sound. Uh, it's funny that this was seen by a lot of the diehard original fans as like a sellout move, this album, which mm. to, to me is just, I played it yesterday just in prep for the episode. Um, and just cause it's a great record. So right. I was, I couldn't think of what to listen to. And I was like, oh, I'm going to put this on the turntable while I'm playing Animal Crossing. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, this is like really abrasive. I mean, yeah. the, the production is like to somebody that isn't familiar with this kind of like, do you call it lo-fi? Like, yeah, well, see, this is one of the things that I think in hindsight, when I first got the album, I was a little like, what the heck is going on with this, right? Is that the way that the songs are produced so when I got this album, I had not yet gotten into My Bloody Valentine, and particularly I had not yet heard the album Isn't Anything, um, which I do see some similarities to in the way the two albums sound. Um, but yeah, the, the production on this is unique, and there was definitely a time, you know, as a listener of it, where I was sort of like, man, you know, I wish that they would like just remaster these songs and like, you know, kind of to whatever studio magic is done to it's like a really like trebly like high end like um kind of sound on the record but in preparing for this episode the more that i think about it right i think that that's like one of the i don't want to sound like Ooh, the demo's better or whatever but like i think that that's one of the big charms of the album for me right is that that's what it sounds like yeah like it's almost like it's a it's a i don't want to say a hidden gem but like there's so much melody just mm-hmm. buried underneath the layers of noise. Yeah. And you just have to live with it for a while. And, and then it starts to, to come out. But really at the time, like people literally saw us, oh, they're trying to be college rock or whatever. And, you know, when we talk about the songs, there are certain songs where I can see that argument a little bit. But then there's a song like, you know, 59 Times the Pain. Right. That's just like, sounds like, you know, Metal Circus or whatever. Right. And like, in listening, to, hearing that argument now, I'm like, 
well, wait till you hear Candy Apple Gray. <laughs> it's really yeah. going to blow your or, mind. Or even the next record. Right, exactly. It, it didn't, they didn't have that like wall of noise sound. Um, and I attribute that to the, I guess a couple things, the, pro- the production for one, and two, that the band was just trying to crank out stuff. They're not a band, you know, we talked about this. They're not a band that was notorious for doing, you know, multiple takes and punch-ins mm-hmm. and all that. So they just finished and said, okay, sounds, sounds good to me. So, you know, Bob, but Bob wrote a lot of these songs on the 12-string acoustic, you know, whereas previously maybe he wasn't doing that. Yeah. So that plays in. You can hear it in, in several of the songs too, just that, that whole feel. So Spot had a a description of of the band that I thought merited to be uh, read because it sort of encapsulates their their vibe. So he said they had tuneful. So this is um, a quote from "Our Band Could Be Your Life." He says they had tuneful material. They were kind of working from within a classic pop structure and doing something else with it kind of like they broke into it with a coat hanger and got the keys out and went on a joyride and then wore the tires out. I think that's a pretty good description of like, cause it sounds like a hardcore band mm-hmm. really sp- spreading their wings and doing something outside of the confines of, of hardcore and adding in those sixties, pop elements and psychedelic elements and yeah um you know stuff like that yeah which was there before like you know when they recorded sunshine superman but they really bring it out on this record yeah like i think they were really just embracing it and being like mm-hmm. and it and especially a couple of the tracks on here really showcase where not only where the band was going but where the individual songwriters were were headed as well yeah agreed um so it's, to me, Zen Arcade had those flashes. You know, you had a song like Never Talking to You Again on there or, you know, Turn on the News um, or Chartered Trips mm-hmm. that really showed that progression too. But this was, I think, a bit more, I don't want to say realized because that's me implying that I think this stuff's all better than the, those things. But I don't know how, like a little more. Yeah intentional yeah maybe um so they had another i feel like every record has this one story like this was the turning point of bob (laughs) grant feuding but like there's (laughs) this looks so many of them yeah um for this record um he uh rejected so grant brought this song in uh and bob said, no, this can't go on the record. It sounds uh, too similar to, I guess there was a Dream Syndicate song that was popular at the time. And he's like, the melody sounds too similar. And that really like chuffed Grant. Like he was not happy about that. And that song ended up being released by Grant uh, when he went solo uh, under the, the name 2541. And I will say that Bob in retrospect, you know, he goes back and basically says like, you know, this is one of the best things Grant ever wrote. Mm. Uh, He just didn't think it fit the album, but that of course started this 
um, you know, more of Grant feeling like he wasn't being, his voice wasn't being fully heard. Yeah. Um, within the, within the band. So the album comes out, uh, in January of 1985. So that's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so July of 1984, they release a double album. Right. And then this comes out six months later. And this comes out six months later. People didn't even have time to like digest Zen Arcade. Yeah. Well, especially if you couldn't get your hands on a copy of the record. Yeah. So to me, that's, I, I can't really believe it. Like I'm trying to think of it like in modern, in modern terms, like, I mean, modern, we're still going back 20 some years, but like, it would be like if like Radiohead had done okay computer and then six months later put out like kid a or whatever. Right. Right. Exactly. And just like, what? Um, It's just light speed. Yeah. Like that's to me, that's crazy. Oh, what to men, what to speak of the fact that nine months after that, they put out flip your wig. And then six months after that, they put out candy apple gray. So crazy. So like, that's mind blowing to me. Yeah. So like within a year and two months of New Day Rising being released, they have not only signed to a major label, but they've put out two LPs. Um I mean that's nuts. Mm-hmm. So and if you really if you look at it from Zen Arcade coming out in July eighty four, that's less than two years and they put out f- four albums. Yeah. I, I can't wrap my mind around it. I mean, I, I really can't. I can't. I mean, that to me, that's like almost even more prolific than the Beatles. I know. Like, cause yeah, I'm trying to, I'm like sitting here like doing the, the math, but like July of 84 to July of 86 would be two full years. Right. And they already had Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, Flip Your Wig, Candy Apple Gray in March. So and, before the two-year mark. That's right. Not- and they're touring. And like, so we're talking write, like rehearse, commit to iterations of the songs, record them, mix them, master them, release them, press the record. Like, you know what I mean? Like commit yeah. to album art, like all of those things in like just like such a short amount of time. It's crazy. And these are acclaimed records. Right. Like, exactly. Like these aren't like throwaway albums. Like oh, they they put out, yeah, they did one one record that was really good, and then they had, you know, these other ones. It was just, they were rushing them, and they have two good songs on them. Like no, that wasn't the case. Right. There's no like sophomore slump going on. Not at all. Um, so this one also gets them critical acclaim. We talked about Rolling Stone. Uh, putting it in the 500 albums, but that was later on. I think that list started in like the early 2000s. But uh, the UK magazine, The Sounds, called them, quote, the most exciting and important American rock group since the Ramones. Dang. So to tour on this record, they head out in late winter of 85, uh, they play a show in Seattle, two shows in, uh, I think Seattle, we'll say, we'll say Pacific Northwest. 
with two unknown opening bands, uh, the Melvins and <laughs> a band called Soundgarden, who at that point had their name uh, as two words, yeah. Soundgarden. Um, I thought that was a neat fact uh, that both those bands opened for them. And then they leave in March of 85. Uh, they head out on what is dubbed as the tour. Mm-hmm. And it was an SST package tour with the Meat Puppets and the Minutemen. And uh, was Black Flag? I feel I thought Black Flag was on that, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and so some, if someone remembers or if we'll, we'll have to look that up, Jude, I, yeah. I totally forgot. If anybody was at that tour. Yeah. Like oh, and up. definitely if anybody saw that tour, um, they, there was a write up for that tour also in Rolling Stone, like a couple page feature on it. Um, and that's why I think black flag. Cause I remember they interviewed Greg Ginn, but maybe they just interviewed him cause SST. So that tour, between that tour, the press for uh, the album and the press for the tour itself, um, major labels started coming around even more so and, and, yeah. and reaching out to, to the band um, in 85. Because they and were already getting some major label interest all the way back with Metal Circus, right? Or like right, like Zen Arcade. I think we talked yeah. about, yeah, like around Zen Arcade. Yeah. Um, I was looking through Triple uh, X fanzine. Um, by Mike Gitter and there was an interview with Husker Du with, well, with Bob from around the time of new day rising. It was 1985 flip your wig may have been the new one. And they were really, they were really refuting the rumors that they signed. Cause there were a lot of rumors around the time that they actually did sign. And we know that they signed uh, in the end of 85, they signed like yeah. November of 85 but there were rumors and they would always just, no, it's not true. Um, but they would also say at the same time, we're not opposed to it. Like sort of like, I guess, softening the blow. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, we talked about on the candy apple gray episode that that was like a really kind of complicated move for them. And there was a lot of blowback and they had yeah. to kind of like publicly account for it. And, and I think some people that aren't from our generation, like don't understand how big of a deal that was when a band would sign, when a, when a band would leave, you know, an independent label and sign to a major label. Like it was a big deal. Like it was like people would get really upset and they would immediately just equate someone signing to a major label as them, you know, the inevitable selling out. Right. Right. You know, and, with Husker Du, they, I, I'm fully confident that they made the same records on Warner Brothers that they would have made if they were still on SST. Yeah. I mean, they didn't go and get a big name producer or anything. Like they still self-produce and all, but yeah, you know, it's, but in reading like all the interviews around that time seemed to center around, um, and we're talking, when I say around that time, I mean like the New Day Rising time, mm-hmm. 85 seem to really center around them signing, you know, whether or not they signed to a major or would they ever sign to a major? Like it was always a part of the conversation. Yeah. With that, why don't we get into the, the tracks on this? Yeah, let's do it. So track one, 
a really important track, New Day Rising. What are your thoughts, Greg? I mean, this is like the intro of all intros, I know, right? I know. Uh, it's, it's got this, uh, you know, it's a lot of repetition, but it somehow does not get boring. Yeah. Which is tough to do. Sometimes if, you know, a song like this where there's not really, the only lyric is New Day Rising. Right. And just, and just wailing it, by the end yeah. of it. Yeah. Right. Just repeating it over and over again like a mantra, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it just builds up and it's the perfect way to start the album. Um, they did a, Bob did a really cool version of this with, um, I think it was, I, unless I'm made dreaming this, it was like that <laughs> Disney tribute concert to Bob. Okay. And Dave Grohl, I think, drummed. Okay. That adds so, up. Yeah, it, and it, it, it was good. It was cool. so good that I don't even remember if it existed. Right. Yeah. It was like, it was like a dream state kind of <laughs> good. <laughs> um, yeah. I think this might be one of the best opening tracks of any album ever in my mind. You use the term mantra and just the kind of like trance, like repetition, something that did grab me about this album. The first time I listened to it while there was some, um, I'd say subtleties to the whole album that it took me a while to wrap my brain around from where I was at the time. Um, but is the is this for a song, right? So I put this on, I was like, SST Records, this is just gonna sound like nervous breakdown. Got it, right? And then I put it on, I was like, what is going on? But the like really fast, like the those like drums, like the like really fast like guitar part, which is like mostly like just like that one kind of chord with like a little melody line, but those like angular, the angular melody on the vocals, so like da 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 da. It it just like blew my mind. It's almost like gospel or something i know like like it's like um like like beach boys buried under there right right harmonies and everything Mm -hmm. but just like put through this punk rock filter but like a much different punk rock filter than like oh the beach boys filter and then you get the ramones like no this is like they had to really jam it in there but it's there (laughs) but the, the guitar especially on this like it it's almost like, like I know Dinosaur Jr. was like ear bleeding country. Yeah. This, while this isn't, con- this is like ear bleeding pop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was, I mean, the spot quote that you read earlier, right? About them like breaking into the car of pop music with a coat hanger and then driving it till the wheels fell off. I think this song really captures that, that idea. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other thing about this um, song, which, it was you who pointed this out to me a few years ago, but Robert Palmer does a cover of it. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, what was the name of his band? Powerline, Power Station. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> I share that to say that uh, uh, I just think Robert Palmer covering this, um, uh, along with like the countless other bands we've named on this podcast that have covered Husker Du, uh, like Sick of It All, our opportunity to have a weekly Sick of It All <laughs> reference. Yeah. Um, it just speaks to what a wide reach the band has, how many um, yeah. different genres they've impacted. And I just know uh, Addicted to Love was like his hit, right? Yeah. And the video had like all the the women dressed like the same, like the white clothes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it, apparently he was a fan and he would encore shows with that with this song there is i don't know if there still is but i do remember finding it on youtube the audio 
Like it's, it exists. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like super high quality, but it's, it's definitely there. So. Yeah. It's fairly easily Googleable. Like I, I Googled it prepping for this episode and it was like the first hit that came up. Yeah. So like uh, that, yeah, that's just weird to me. Yeah. Like you wonder how he came across this record. Yeah. Like it's kind of like, I mean, it's not, it, um, it's a, it's a, a cover that makes a little bit more sense, but it's kind of like, um, the, the Pixies covering Jesus and Mary chain very shortly after the Jesus and Mary chain song came out. Right. Yeah. Cause this, he was covering it by like 19, like later that year, I think. Right. Like yeah. 85. I think so. I think I, I forget. Um, do we have any Robert Palmer fans or historians listening? <laughs> Please if do so, chime in. You yeah. know what? Let's find him on uh, Instagram and see if we can. Or did he? Did he? He's did, dead. Yeah, he's, he's dead. De- <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> All right. Well, he died. Really? Uh, that's right. I rem- um, I'm 99% sure that Robert Palmer passed away. <laughs> well, we, we have to look now. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, Husker Du, we've talked about it before, but they have. Uh, a really um, wide net of yeah. influence from hardcore to pop. I mean, like I said, there's footage of Kirk, ha- uh, Kirk Hammett from Metallica uh, talking about who's going to And Robert Palmer, he uh, did pass away in 2003. So I don't think that uh, I will be able to reach out to him. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Too um, soon? I don't know. Oh. oh. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's cool. Um, I guess, and then it, it comes full circle because then Sonic Youth, under the name Chicone Youth, they covered a Robert Palmer song. There you go. Cool. So there we go. We, we wrapped it all up in a nice bow. So Nicely done. So then track two, we have The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill. Greg, thoughts? So... You know, it's funny, we mentioned, I guess, on a previous episode about that black metal band, I forget the name, that, that covered this. Um, but this song's super raw. Uh, Grant's voice, there's like some kind of, I don't know if it's an effect or just the fact that, you know, he talks about not being happy with the production of this at all. Mm. And it's, like I said, it's really primal and raw, but it's still like... Um, it's still a, a poppy song. I love 60s. it. Yeah. yeah, it's a great song. And it's, um, you know, Jeff Dean mentioned Carl Alvarez from Descendants and All talking about Greg Norton's bass playing on this yep. is ridiculously good. I know. Um, it just, like I said, he he unfairly, I think, gets overshadowed. What a great, one of the best bass players yeah, the baseline and the chorus of this song. Yeah, yeah it's so good. Um, just needs more credit. He needs more credit for what he brought to the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's such a it's an awesome song. It's like got such um, a great hook to it. Um, I I actually, you know, as I shared earlier, have come to really appreciate the production on it, and I feel like Grant's like raspy vocals are. Well, that's not necessarily tied to the production, but I feel like Grant's raspy vocals are part of what the appeal to the song is for me. Like he's like just like losing his mind. I have no idea what this song is about, um, but 
Um, I do know that Heaven Hill is extremely cheap whiskey that I believe comes in uh, what is euphemistically referred to as a shatterproof bottle. And I always kind of, you know, speculated if that was connected to the... To this the was their drinking process. album. That's what Bob uh, called it. Um, yeah. At least for Bob. He was saying like, uh, if, if Zen Arcade was our, you know, methamphetamine in the coffee album, this was our drinking album. So interesting. Who, who knows? Like, yeah, I want to... I want to circle back to that theme when we get to how to skin a cat. Yeah. Like it, um, but this is, a, this is a great, it's a great song. It's a yeah. great grant song. It sounds live. On, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. super raw. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, just kind of like one final thought about the song, right? Like, is that I think that that's what one of the things that makes it a really great song for me, aside from being extremely catchy, featuring incredible songwriting, singing, bass playing, but it's also like, you know, uh, a wise person once said that a good song could be about like the most tragic breakup or like missing the bus. Like it could be about anything that anyone could relate to. And I think that this song is capable of achieving that. Yeah, it's got that hook. Um, it's very, you know, Grant stuff really leaned on that 60s pop mm-hmm. vibe. Um, this track being no exception. And it has that freaking killer bass line, man. Yep. That bass line is what, makes the song to me yeah yeah so track three i apologize um this is a is classic bob um and it almost sounds to me like my note here says sped up sugar question mark (laughs) i can totally hear that as i noted this at (laughs) you know midnight (laughs) a couple days ago (laughs) but i stand by that It, it it really is it's like it's like a little bit faster than most of what Sugar would do. And I know there's tracks like Tilted and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it has that Bob, you know, it's, it's Bob. Yeah. Yeah. A long string of Sugar, or of, excuse me, a long string of Who's For Do songs about apologizing, which as a, as a chronic compulsive apologizer, I can totally connect <laughs> with. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just, you know, we've talked about it before in this podcast, but Bob always puts the hot tracks at, at track three. Yeah, and this this is no exception. Yeah, I've definitely seen um, him play this one. It's yeah, great. I was going to say, this this yeah. is a set staple, usually. Mm-hmm. Like, this and another track on the album uh, are, are both, like, I want to say I've seen him do every time I've seen him. Yeah. So, Folklore, Jude. Just the guitar tone, I think, on this song is like very isn't anything-ish. I kind of talked about um, a connection that I see between My Bloody Valentine's isn't anything and this record. And I think that, you know, the guitar tone on this song, uh, that, that's sort of, you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing in it. Um, the, uh, also, like, I love the like, oh. oh, oh. Yeah, this one's ca- catchy. Yeah. Uh, fast. It's... It's weird. It's two Bob songs back to back, two like you know high caliber Bob songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Taylor Swift has a new album called Folklore, and one has to wonder if she does the do. She's. <laughs> She's I don't know. She's it's a good it. record, by the way. Her new record, Folklore. I gotta check it out. I gotta check it out. Yeah, it's really. It's I think a uh, guy from. I think a lot of the uh, songs were co-written with the guy from the national oh cool um yeah it's it's a it's an excellent record but Matt for some reason is that his name i think so okay um 
So when I hear folklore now, like when I saw she had the album Folklore, this song was the first thing I thought of. So yeah, I figured I'd note it. Um, so next we have track four or track five, excuse me, If I Told You. So If I Told You to me, so this is a joint composition of mm -hmm. uh, Bob and Grant. And to me, this is like, this one's like a real precursor to Flip Your Wig. Now, it's, it's funny. I can hear that. And I mean Flip Your Wig, like the song uh, Flip Your Wig. Yeah, I can hear that. The, the, the first song on the next album. A precursor is so funny when you have another album like six months later. Like, <laughs> this is a hint of what's to come. And it's not like, you know, you're, you're not waiting too long to, to hear the fruits of that. Yeah. But um, it just has that vibe. Like, this song could have been on Flip Your Wig to me. Yeah. I can hear that. Yeah, the the like the flangey effect on the guitar in this one is total proto grunge to me. I don't think I've talked about D. Kreutzen on this podcast before. You know, another Midwest band, a band that was genre bending in a lot of ways, um, in in ways that were very different than Husker Du. They kind of took like sort of like you know punky metal and and kind of had sort of moody transitioned into kind of moody proto grunge stuff, but. Uh, the guitar tone in this song reminds me of the guitar tone on early D. Kreutzen stuff. Yeah, and and it has also that bass. Yeah, yeah, and and I love the if I told you if I told yeah. you there mm -hmm. really really awesome like yeah this is this is a great song. Yeah, speaking of great songs, I know. Up next, we have a Bob staple. I don't want to like uh, uh, you know. Uh, ruin the magic here folks but greg's notes on this one just say i don't even need notes for this one <laughs> yeah i don't i don't <laughs> i know i know um so this is celebrated summer um we have oh gosh this one first off i've seen bob play it a bunch um it's such a great song um there's a really great record store named celebrated summer in baltimore um a friend of the pod, her Instagram handle is celebrated summer. Like, so, you know, it's good. I mean, people are naming stores and right. Instagram handles after yeah. it, but I mean, it's just a great song. It's like, uh, it's one of the best things Bob's ever written. I think yeah. um, it really captures the, the feeling that it's supposed to capture. Um, it captures and yeah. it has like that acoustic break in the middle. Mm -hmm. Like this was the one that they thought was going to be the hit. Like this is going to get them on the college radio. And I think it did. Um, it just, I just, I love it. I never get tired of this song. Mm -mm. Um, I love that Bob still plays it. I think the live, somehow the live version is even more potent. You know, there's the live version on the living end. Mm. Um, where Grant, I think, really shines on it. He has these great backups. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I didn't even need notes because it's just that damn good. Yeah, yeah, definitely a top five Husker Du song for me. Um, I love the, like, I think, that, I think that this song for me just has everything that I want in a Husker Du song just all in whatever, four minutes or however long the song is. Yeah, and like, to me, possible hot take, like I feel like makes no sense at all is always like the one that's mentioned, but I like this song more than makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. Even though I love makes no sense at all. I think it's a fantastic song. Yeah. Song just, it really strikes a chord. 
I gotcha. Um, I think this song, and there's another one that we'll get to, uh, really, if it had been produced like by, you know, I don't know, whoever was popular at the time in the 80s that wouldn't make it sound like the 80s, but it would be like a better quality, like this could have been a, a hit song. Like yeah. this could have been summer of 69. Right, right, exactly. I mean, exactly. I really believe, like I believe that this songwriting is that good where if, if it had a clear production, um, this could have been like a summer time hit song uh, for, all, for alternative music. Um, and it could have probably crossed over. Like it's, it's just, it's that good. Yeah. Agreed. So next up we have perfect example. So for perfect example, my notes just REME. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it sounds like it could have been on like reckoning or something. Um, you really hear the acoustic guitar. I want to say this is the one where Bob said like he was just had been drinking a lot and just was feeling kind of, you know, whatever. And, this song is what came out. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally hear the REM connection. And I, I think like one of the things that makes this album so great in my mind is that you get perfect example, but um, again, a controversial song that we'll talk about later, but you also get how to skin a cat, right? Like you get, you get a wide range on this. One. Yeah, you really do. That's why I said. It's, it's still, even though it's one of the things about this one, even though it's not a double album, it almost has the feel of a double album because of how much it uh, jumps around. Yeah. But works. Yeah. Like, like white album thing. Right. 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 It's like, it's almost like, it almost sounds like they recorded a double album's worth of stuff and then kept what they thought were the best tracks. And this is it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I totally hear the, the white album connection yeah. too. Yeah. So next up, we have Terms of Psychic Warfare. What an awesome song name. Yeah, it's super like punk sounding, mm-hmm. almost, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so for Terms of Psychic Warfare, um, I just said this also is very 60s sounding, very Grant. Like this is clearly a Grant Hart song. Yeah. Like you can't, you cannot uh, take that away from them. Yeah. You know, I'd have to like go back and like kind of look at the lyrics a little bit better, right? But I always kind of, chalk this song up as being like a some kind of breakup song right or like you're in like some kind of like relationship with someone and you're like fucking with each other's heads a little bit you know probably makes sense with the title too right and i guess grant was like really good at those kind of i mean we talk about grant writing the irish goodbye great song so next up we have uh 59 times the pain oh yeah 59 times the pain this i i mentioned earlier uh is like a zen arcade yeah uh i put zen arcade side two like um, you know, Zen Arcade Side 2 or Metal Circus, this song would have fit in nicely. Um, the way the end where he just starts, you know, Bob is screaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's perfect. Love this one. Yeah. When I was preparing my notes for this week, I got to 59 Times the Pain and like it hit me just how many bangers there are in this album. It's almost like pummeling. Like there's like just so many good songs one after another after another. There's also a yeah. band, 59 Times the Pain, that we're on. I, I was exposed to them on Punkorama 4 in 1999. <laughs> yeah, they, I think they were from uh, Sweden, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, I want to say they, uh, they were, I know they were not from the U.S. I've never heard them. I wonder if they're any, I mean, they at least have the right influences, so. Yeah. 
should probably if anyone knows tell me tell us what to check out yeah we're open open to suggestions yeah so next we have a power line mm-hmm. um and it seems like we both kind of came to the same uh same conclusion on this one this one is almost like if you took shoegaze music, but you just sped it up to hardcore. Yeah. Um, yeah. F- uh, our friend in the pod, um, near and dear friend, drummer in our old band, Fidge, used to always joke that the drummer in shoegaze bands has the easiest job in the world. So like th- this song, like to me, sounds like a shoegaze song with like a, just a harder working drummer. Yeah. No yeah, it really does. To- like you can oh, go on. Sorry. Oh yeah. No disrespect to shoegaze drummers of the world out there. Yeah, but I, I know we know what you mean. Like, especially yeah. like some of the more droning, slower, yeah, stuff. Like to me, when I hear a song like Powerline, that's when I can really see the influence that that the Hooskers had on on that entire genre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Swerve Driver and My Bloody yeah. Valentine and all that. Like it, this is one of those early examples. Yeah. Um, so then we have another uh, Grant composition. Books about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Dish. What a like for what an awesome song. What an awesome song title. It's almost like Springsteen esque to me. Like the uh, the like piano part in the background. It's just a super great catchy song. My wife uh, Becca, she because I like I said I had this record on yesterday, and she was like, <laughs> she said this sounded like Meatloaf. <laughs> She said, I don't know what song, but like this melody is like meatloaf. And I was like, I don't, yeah. maybe, but like. The, know, maybe meatloaf solemn tour in uh, 1985 <laughs> on that uh, the SS2 the, the piano and stuff. Like to me, this song is the other one I was talking about with Celebrated Summer, where if this had actual like good production quality, this also could have been an 80s radio hit. Yeah. Yeah, completely see that. Absolutely. Full stop. Like it yep. could have been. Yeah. Like where, where you could hear all the instruments and, you know, the vocals. You know, he got a couple passes of the vocals and maybe he, uh, you know, had a chance to double vocals and do all this taboo stuff. Yeah. But make it like Beatles. Like this could have been a hit. Yeah. Yeah, like you'd be singing this song instead of singing uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light or whatever. We <laughs> <Yeah>. love <laughs> songs. But like, and, and just to clarify, when I say the better production. Just to clarify, be, I love Meatloaf. <laughs> I actually do like Meatloaf. Nice. <laughs> when we say like better production, I mean, it is what it is. These songs are still great. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that like the production necessarily ruins, but I, I think that, I definitely think that it didn't necessarily help them. Um, to achieve what they were capable of achieving. Yeah, totally. So, but hey, maybe we don't know what we're talking about, which is a great segue. <laughs> is uh, the next song is I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, this is like, uh, it's still like hardcore sounding to me, but it's like more on the upbeat, like melodic side. But yeah, it, to me, it's like um, it has that poppy. Like it just has that poppy sensibility. Like I could almost see like uh, earlier, like which you know they did cover Who's Could Do, but like Lifetime, I could yeah. see like playing this this song. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That Lifetime cover that they recorded is great, by the way. Yeah, it is. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I totally agree. Like, like an upbeat, like kind of hardcore song. Like you see they're taking stuff like off of, they're taking the kind of urgency off of some of the earlier stuff, right? And just kind of heading in a slightly new trajectory with it. Um, I also think this is like, a, you know, another Husker Du song just about miscommunication, something that they, as we're doing this podcast, it struck me how regularly they wrote songs that are about miscommunication. They really did. Like there's a lot. Yeah. I didn't notice until... You know, we we did this. Um, so, just yeah. how many how many there were? Yeah. So next up, we have the potentially divisive "How to Skin a Cat." Greg, what are your thoughts? So, to me, this one's kind of like it's a whatever. It's like a, it's like if this wasn't on the album, I don't think I would be like <laughs> like like I don't think I'd be I would be talking about how it you know how much the record suffered from, you know, not <laughs> having it. Yeah. Yeah. From, from missing it. It, it reminds me of, um, so Dag Nasty, again, I feel like we mention them every time, mm-hmm. uh, which granted, I think that Dag Nasty, um, you know, to, I think Husker do either consciously or subconsciously influenced a lot of the, revolution summer dc mm. stuff dag nasty weren't really a part of that they were there and at the same time but they had they had the melody um but i think like even like rights of spring like i can hear the husker the touches of husker do because you know both bands love the beatles yeah um so dag nasty have the song my dog's a cat and it like for some reason always makes me think like the same thing and it's like it's a song that I think wasn't ever released until they had this like rarities collection called 85 to 86 with, you know, at the time unheard demos and a couple of live tracks. And this was on there and it was like a studio throwaway. And that's pretty much to me what this is. Like yeah. when I look and see that there's an outtake from new day rising called Erase today. And you listen to Erase today and you think, so they put this on there and not erase today, which bands do this all the time. Like it's not a Husker exclusive yeah. thing where you go, what were they thinking? But yeah. um, this is truly a case of, I don't know what they were thinking to leave that off. Yeah. Well, when and, we did Sugars, oh, sorry, go ahead. And, and put this on. Yeah. Yeah. When we did Sugars File Under Easy Listening, one of your critiques of the song Company Book, right, was that you just liked some of the David Barb songs that were the B-sides on the album better. Than right. And that happens a lot. And, and yeah. sometimes it's cool because, oh man, the B-side's so good. Yeah. But in this case, it's like, ah oh man, like they should have put that on here. Yeah. But and thankfully we, we have access to all the stuff. Like it's not. Yeah. And, and I don't want to talk too much because we're going to do a Husker do B-sides. So I don't want to yeah. talk about that, but that's yeah. my two cents. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is talked about as like their drinking album, right? Like, you know, there's like, um, the adage that is sometimes used like write sober edit or write drunk edit sober. I feel like this one, they were like writing drunk editing drunk. Um, <laughs> it's far from my favorite Husker du song. I, and I agree with everything that you said. If it were missing from the album, I definitely wouldn't be like, Oh, they should have put that one on there, you know? But I think when you hold it against songs like celebrated summer against songs like, uh, books about UFOs, like everything else on this album, you're like, okay, this song like definitely stands out. But I think, you know, it stands out as the the one that in my mind 
I tend to skip, like if I'm listening to the album front to back. But I think when you hold it against other like experimental music, I think that it holds up, right? So like you mentioned the White Album earlier, right? The White Album gets away with revolution number nine. Like why can't Husker Du get away with How to Skin a Cat on this album? Thinking about this as like, you know, this is like their, their um, stab at like a Mothers of Invention style kind of like experimental sounds or a band that was mentioned in the Sal Canestra interview, right? But like Butthole Surfers, like particularly, I could hear this as like being a song that is like, similar to something off Hairway to Steven or Rembrandt Pussy Horse. Yeah. Side note, I can't say the name of those Butthole Surfers records like without giggling, and I'm a 36-year-old <laughs> man, but particularly the song Perry on Rembrandt Pussy Horse, like I can hear like, you know, kinds of thematic connections and how the songs sound. Yeah. No, I, you know, and that's a good point. I can, I can definitely hear the, like, this is very Butthole Surfers. Yeah. Um, but it, it's almost the kind of thing where I'm like, let's leave the butthole surfers to the butthole surfers. Cause I, I, I like the butthole surfers. Yeah. Um, I like saying the name butthole surfers. <laughs> <laughs> what would have been funny is if like SST just to fuck with people had released some promo single with, uh, this song on the A side and the baby song on the B side. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> just send it to radio stations. Yeah. It's like an April fool's day. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like it's, it is what it is. And then up next we have, uh, what you drinking? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> my note goes, it's fast question mark. That's cool. Like, this is another <laughs> song where it's like, it's cool. It almost sounds like, like, I feel like I could see like no effects playing this song. Like when they would do those yeah. hardcore EPs where they'd like, you know, play more like, early 80s hardcore like that's a kind of what this reminds me of it's not a bad song no but it's like um it's not a it's not a highlight yeah yeah in a in an earlier uh phase of my life when i would drink heavily and do so like at bars oh, God, i don't know, I haven't been to a bar in years but anyway when i would drink heavily and do so at bars that was like my friends and i this was like our refrain yeah like it's it's cat it's yeah it's catchy it's cool um but this isn't like this isn't like mixtape worthy. No, I mean maybe it was. I guess if you wanted to have like drinking songs, yeah, you could have. Um, I don't know. If, and then I'm like, is it just because I don't drink? I don't know. And I'm like, no, because like there's replacement songs about drinking that I think are fantastic. So it's just, yeah, it's a cool song. It's not. It's definitely not like essential, but it's not something I skip. Yeah. So then finally, closing track. Uh, plans I make. Um, what are your thoughts on this one? I just think it's like a, I think it's a great ending track, right? It's the, it's the kind of ending track that makes you want to flip the record over and hear the first song on the other side again. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's a good closer. I said to, to me, like, you know, on, they're coming off of a double LP where they had a 20, I forget how, no, I forget how long recurring dreams is or mm-hmm. i always get dreams reoccurring and recurring dreams yeah, but the last yeah. track on on zen arcade uh you know is like 13 minutes or something i'm, I'm not it's long yeah so this is almost like a condensed version of that like with vocals i said that it reminds me a little bit of the secret track on nevermind endless nameless i could see that how yeah. it almost just sounds like a not in a bad way but like a studio jam like that they were just like we got one track left. 
let's just record and see what happens. Yeah. And that's, that's what they did. And it's, it's cool. Yeah. And you know, so is endless nameless, but like it has that, it has that feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that ends the record. Yeah. Um, so what's your favorite track? So wait, real quick, Greg, oh, yeah. did we want to do, cause this one's not as divided up like Bob Grant. Like, did we want to do it that way? Yeah. Why not? Okay. I, I have, I have my picks. So, okay. Okay. Gotcha. And they may be the same. They may yeah. not. Just wanted so, to, just wanted to clarify. Yeah. So that's cool. But yeah, this um, one, and that's a good point. This one's not as evenly divided as some of the other records. Yeah. There's even some ones that are like, like dual composition. Written Exactly. Um, and that might be why too. So, so I think I know what your favorite Bob song is. Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said, uh, you know, if I said otherwise, like mine celebrated summer. Yeah. Predictable, but like, it's, it's too damn good. How about you? My favorite Bob song on this record. Um, so if this is fair, I want to say that my favorite song on the record is a dual composition and it's the, the first track. So it's new day rising. There's just something about that song that like as an opening track, um, you know, there's like the, um, uh, whatever that song is about, there's like the, you know, like the, the artist's intention and then the impact. So there's just something about that song like gets me every single time you describe the lyrics as being like kind of mantra, like, like I'm not like a spiritual person, but there's something about that song. that's just like, uh, it's like, it's like religious for me or something like if like there's like so much like in a single day. And if you could just like pause and like uh, be mindful of that, it would blow your mind. Like you would be like they are at the end of the song. You would be just wailing. Like with, like, yeah, no, it's about like, what is, and it's not like, it's not like I'm having a, a, I'm like having a good day because I met somebody I love or like this cool thing happened to me or even like, um, it's just like today is a new day and like there's so much possibility in that that it, it will blow your mind. Seems like a good jogging song. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, but, but it really is, it, you know, it captures the feel of the album cover. Yeah. Now the funny thing about the album cover is, is that that's actually a sunset. It's not a sunrise. I found huh. out. Huh. Um, it's a sunset but it still captures that vibe. Yeah. Um, and it is for a song with three words in it. Yeah. It's super powerful. Mm-hmm. Like a mantra. Yeah. And, and as someone that, you know, I am a person that is into mantras. I can totally see how this song it's, it's like hypnotic. Yeah. Um, so that's, so we'll, we'll let, we can let that be, I guess your favorite Bob. Cool. So how about Grant? Do you have a favorite Grant? Girl who lives on Heaven Hill. Okay. So mine is books about UFOs. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, but both are great. The listeners, when you get that playlist, you'll get four separate songs. Yeah. <laughs> so. Which are honestly like four of the best songs on the record. Yeah. Um, there were some other contenders. Like If I Told You is great. It is. It is. Um, and, and there's others too. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy with those picks. Yeah. All right. So that's it for this week, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much as always for listening and for all your support. And we're looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk rock for our next episode, which will be episode 10. Cannot believe it. 
we are in double digits. Um, <laughs> we made it. Uh, we're going to be uh, conducting another interview. Uh, this time will be with a friend of mine, Kamala Radha. Uh, she's a, a former 90s hardcore kid turned DJ uh, and owner of the now defunct Sugar Shack Records. Uh, if you grew up in New Jersey, especially like the central Jersey area, um, you probably know her and her father owned a bunch of businesses, um, quality comics, neat stuff, twonky video and incognito. So, you know, she grew up in the counterculture, uh, in the punk scene, and uh, we're excited to have her on the show. And she's going to talk about her Husker Du Bob Mould fandom. So be on the lookout for that for episode 10. Thanks, everybody. Take it easy. See you next week. Dude, I can't even believe.